Oh, a life of adventure is gay and free, and danger has its charm. And no pig of spirit will bound his life by the fence of his master's farm. Yet there's no tick but heaves a sigh at the pleasant thought of the old home sky. But when tires at last of wandering, and the roads grow steep and long, a treadmill round where no peace is found if one follows it over long. And however they wander, both pigs and men are always glad to get home again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our podcast about Freddy the Pig. Thank you for clarifying. I am. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am your host, Jai Willits, or at least one of the hosts. Other hosts say something. I also am your host. My name is Ethan Bartlett, but I'm not even the complete. The I'm not the complete set yet. I am the complete set. I am your other host, Michael Lilienthal. Or as he is known to us, Michael, the complete set, Lilienthal. <laughs> That's what my friends call me. Yep. What so it means varies from that. friend to friend. Every now and then we just call him the complete. <laughs> <laughs> so, or TCS. So, all right. Some people call me Kami, you know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well. Well, what are we here to do, gentlemen? Are we here to read? To no, we have read. Hopefully, uh, Freddy goes to the North Pole. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Originally published as "More to and Again." Mm-hmm. More to and Again, which is sort of like if the Lord of the Rings trilogy had been published as like "There and Back Again," and then like "There and Back Again Again." <laughs> Yes. And then the third one would be also there and back again. Would the Silmarillion just be there? There. Uh, or just be back again. Or back again. There or back again. There you go. <laughs> there or. <laughs> yeah. Well, in any case, um, Per, per what we did during our last podcast when we read Freddy Goes to Florida, we'll be outlining a couple of the background details, and I believe we're going to be starting with Ethan's Nostalgia Corner. Ethan, what do you have from your whole nostalgia box of your dark childhood? Well, uh, in my time as a Dickensian orphan who slept sort of the third layer deep of children. Um, they, they, used to, they used to throw us all in the basement like three layers deep before we would go out and, you know, beg for, beg for bread to bring back to... Uh, uh, man, I forgot the guy from Oliver Twist, and I'm pretty sure that's like a problematic Fagan? reference. Fagan? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway... Um, in the meantime, I would listen to a lot of books on tape, which I think I talked about last episode. Um, I would also like I listened to Freddy the Detective, which we haven't gotten to in the series, but that got me into 
What's that? That's next, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, it's the third chronologically in the series. I had thought that I had not actually ever read Freddy Goes to the North Pole, so I actually thought this would be a pretty like sad nostalgia corner this time. Uh, <laughs> but as I was reading the first chapter and like reading about the animals, like getting the idea to run a touring company. Um, I was having really, really specific flashbacks to like, just like my room as a child and also certain parts of the yard that I would go to and read outdoors. Um, so I think I did read this book. I did not remember most of it other than those first couple chapters. Uh, but it was not a book I was assigned to read for school. It was one I read for fun. So I assume I did read the whole thing. <laughs> um, other, other than that like all i really have to say is you know i was i was uh giving my wife updates as i read through this volume uh and you know she she said like is this a british book like is was it was was the author british and i was like no he was not only american but he was very american and uh I didn't know how to articulate that further because, you know, like you have your, your wind in the willows and your red walls. And um, like, there's a lot of these British books that are about talking animals. Um, and so I, I wasn't sure how to, how to like drive home how American this particular talking animal author was until I, I hit on the expedient of saying, well, so in the first book, they go to Florida. And in the first chapter of the second book, they monetize that. Um, so, yeah, we, we can we can maybe get into this later. But, like, I've always had a sense of the Freddy books as, like, a different sort of beast from, like, again, like your Wind in the Willows, your, uh, um, your Red Walls, your other, like, classic British talking animal books. Um, mm-hmm. We, we could get into a whole E.B. White thing, but this is not the Charlotte's Web podcast. Oh, um, I, I mean, it will be from time to time. Eventually, and eventually yeah. will completely be. But uh, yeah. Yeah. At a certain point, we'll talk about Babe. And mm-hmm. We talked about Babe last time, didn't we? Did we? Yeah, I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah, it makes sense. Because it was it and it and Chicken Run were like what I compared oh, yeah. unfavorably to like the viciousness of uh That's right. of, like Freddy right. goes to Florida, which will come up again probably today. Oh, yes. But probably you don't immediately. Have to that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but as far as nostalgia goes, that's all I really have to offer. This time, and I'm, I'm partly I, I feel the need to keep this nostalgia corner short because once we get into Freddy the Detective, like that's gonna be the whole hour. Like you guys won't <laughs> talk at all. Good. Looking so, forward to it. Yeah, that's that's all I have to say about that at this point. All right. Well, why don't we move along to Michael's little corner of historical background? <clears throat> Cue the. Uh... Uh, library music. Um, I don't know what I mean by that. Freddy Goes to the North Pole, originally published, as mentioned, as Moore to and again debuted in 1930. It was three years 
after the first book in the series. As noted in the last episode, it was in 1926 that the Josephine Ford claimed to have flown over the North Pole, but there is some controversy over the validity of that flight. You've got kind of uh, a massive debate um, within people who care about such things about whether that was the first flight over the North Pole or not. at this point, Ethan also wants me to say that the Transantarctic expedition of Ernest Shackleton uh, occurred. It, it actually predates this novel by just a little over a decade. It was 1914 to 1917. Um, also, it should be mentioned, that was the South Pole. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but. Have I provoked hey. you enough? Have I provoked you enough? <laughs> no, I'm going to shut up now. No, I'm not. Because, A... Historically speaking, and like like within the the realm of like cultural history, the Shackleton expedition left a huge mark. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, like the whole idea of you send an initial expedition and then you send a secondary expedition mm-hmm. to like rescue the initial expedition, like that has very big, like that's following in very big tr- sort of track marks of the story of the Shackleton expedition. Definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I, I will say that I did have a note about that before you, you mentioned it to me, but I, I thought I'd be a butt to you a little bit. Well, that's uh, <laughs> nothing new in our uh, 11 years of, of uh, knowing each other. So it been 11 I have years? to say I'm shocked, at least. It's too much, too much. I'm 31 years old, and so are you. Whoa, no, hey, you don't know that. <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, he, he said you were 31 years old I'm not 31 <laughs> yes I am uh, anyways, anyway speaking of 31 uh, interestingly the iconic Coca-Cola Santa Claus was not invented until oh. a year after this book's publication and that was in 1931 oh my um, gosh ooh. I was wondering about that because well, there yeah. you have it we, yeah. we can talk a little bit more about that, but just a little more um, history to this, that uh, the poem Twas the Night Before Christmas was already very popular. It was published in 1823 and had kind of a resurgence in popularity in the early 20th century. Uh, and that poem propagated the idea of Santa Claus driving a sleigh pulled by reindeer, even giving the names of the eight most popular reindeer. Um, of course, notably right. missing in there is Rudolph, Rudolph would not be invented until 1939 uh, in the the poem slash song written by Robert L. May. Um, and in the same way, I was I was wondering about that, so I'm glad you brought that to our, our mm-hmm. historical corner here. Um, in the same way that we assume that the title of uh, "To and Again" inspired Tolkien to write "There and Back Again," <laughs> I have to assume that uh, the horse. Shoot, I forgot his name. Uh, uh, not Uncle William. Uncle William? Yeah, that Uncle William going with the reindeer as sort of a last-minute substitute <laughs> in this book written in 1930, I have to assume that that inspired uh, the the songwriter of, of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Mm-hmm. Um, because I had been wondering which was the chicken and which was the egg mm-hmm. on that one as I read the, the back half of this novel. But obviously... Freddy the pig is always the chicken. Always. Freddy the pig is always the chicken or the egg. Uh, 
No, but he's always the chicken who lays the egg that other people get rich on. And who is Walter R. Brooks? No one knows, and it's very sad. I know. Anyway. Right? Um, all right, I've just got a, a couple more notes here. Uh, another aspect yes. of this book, um, whaling, as it comes up in this book. Whaling was relatively <laughs> common at this time. Uh, and in 1931, a year after this, there was a convention signed by 27 nations in the League of Nations that uh, called for the regulation of whaling. Um, what that uh, convention ultimately did was just nothing. It was a bunch of signatures. <laughs> nothing actually changed. So the practice I mean, of whaling wouldn't actually be regulated until the 80s. <laughs> wow. What? Yep. Oh my gosh, that actually does change a bunch of things that I thought about that uh, portion of this book. Okay, um, okay. Which I'm sure we can get into later, but also as a history nerd, I have to get in this dig that yeah. that's most of what the League of Nations did. Oh, I, I know, nothing. I know, yep, <laughs> it did nothing. Uh, oh. I'm actually a little bit surprised to learn that they were still signing things in 1931. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, uh, just uh, an, another thing here that kind of is yes. ancillary to this book, uh, uh, maybe a darker side of, of the book, and we'll talk about the darker sides of the book too. Um, social work was uh, a growing profession at this time and had been growing since the 1890s uh, up until okay. the early 1930s. And so it was, it was um, growing up in the, the conception of uh, America that children could be removed from abusive homes. Um, okay. Also, last, last note here, uh, and I think this is just going to be a running theme from here on out. Uh, the U.S. president at this time was Herber Herbert Hoover. Mm. Doesn't come up specifically in this novel, but I thought it was important to mention, since we mentioned uh, Calvin Coolidge in the last one. Oh, okay. So just like in, the, in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. um, interesting. Yeah, uh, and we we could if we if we were a real boring podcast, we could spend like an entire episode talking about this book as like early Great Depression escapism and the fact that like Herbert Hoover never comes up, Hoovervilles never comes up, like hobos and tramps never come up, uh, being like you know sort of signifying a certain cultural moment or a a desire for a certain amount of escapism. Um, mm -hmm. But that's all I want to say about that specific Thank historical non-aspect. And that, that is something that I probably could have mentioned here that the, the great depression was not happening in the first novel, but it was, it started just the year before this novel was published. Yeah. And I mean, you could argue that like with how like, how much time composition takes and how much time right. publishing takes. Maybe it wouldn't have been in Walter R. Brooks's mind quite yet by the time of right. like the writing of this book, but very, very possible. Yeah. Still interesting. Mm -hmm. That was very kind of you, Ethan, to say that we're not a boring podcast. So. <laughs> well, you know, if, if we can't support our podcast, who can? True story. Speaking of story, um, I suppose if Michael oh. with historical background, I yep. will move on to the plot summary. And yes. as as is always the case when I'm a pot on a podcast, I talk extemporaneously. So prepare for <laughs> prepare for you know a disorganized mess. Okay, but did you read the book? Yeah, I did. I didn't actually okay, 
physical copy, but I did. Um, I do have it on my phone. Um, nice. I, I was reading it Kindle way. Um, but in any case, so it's a school about the book. Way. What? Nothing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> as as we mentioned before, the book opens with the animals coming up with the idea to form a corporation. Since their trip to Florida was a huge success, and they figured, you know, I bet a bunch of other animals would love to travel. Why don't we take advantage of that and use that as a way to, you know, get other animals to do labor for us? And, well, initially it was food. Initially it was food and clothing that they would provide food and clothing. And then... Um, they would take them on trips around the town that they live in and the various places and the various sites and even um, doing um, bigger trips and even, you know, advertising or, well, mainly the smaller trips so that they could do the bigger trips for trips to Florida. But eventually somebody came up with the idea of, well, we could also do this for labor. We could have other animals do the work on the farm for us and We'll do hardly any of the work throughout the year, and we'll just work the touring business and everything. Um, of course, with that, Freddy and a couple of the other animals get jaded with the whole, we've been touring so much, we just want to travel. And so Freddy devises this expedition to go to the North Pole. By the way, this whole business is a great thing for Mr. Bean and his, er, and his wife because they – it's one of those magical things that they say that they want something to happen. And the animals pick up on that because the animals understand human speak, which by the way, the human speak animal speak thing, a lot of questions get cleared up in this book. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in any case, Mr. Bean and Mrs. Bean definitely are thriving off of this business that the animals have started as well. And they want for nothing. And Mm -hmm. have had everything taken care of they do mention the fact that it would be nice if they had children which they have not had the opportunity to have at this point um and so freddie and his friends that are you know a little bit jaded by this business that they started they decide we're going to go to the north pole a few of them leave and they're gone for a long time and um about how long a good over a year or is it right mm -hmm. about a year that they're gone? Uh, I honestly didn't like keep track well that's, enough to know for sure. That's a very I'm good pretty, question. I'm pretty sure it's a year. I think they leave during the summer, and they and they well, you know the they come, they have, they they come back right after Christmas. Yeah, after Christmas of the following year, I think, because I is think it they the leave during the, the summer. Year? I think so. I think they leave during the summer and some of the birds that are heading south for winter, you know, come and give them report of like the animals and everything and how they said, yeah, we think mm. we're getting close to the North Pole and everything. And then they go throughout like spring and summer and don't hear a thing. And that could be. Yeah, yeah. I think you're you're right, actually. Yeah. And then. Oh, yeah. OK. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then mm. Ferdinand. New character um, that wasn't really mentioned in the first book, I don't think. Ferdinand wasn't mentioned in the first book, was he? I Ferdinand the Crow? I think he's mentioned. Yeah, I, think, I think he's mentioned, but I don't think he has even as like pivotal a role as no. he does in this book. Yeah, 
Well, he's actually with the travelers in this book. He wasn't with the travelers in the last book, if he was mm-hmm. mentioned at all. Um, but he comes back um, just around the time that the animals had already figured we got to send somebody after them. Um, if they were performing or they were about to form a delegation and everything and send a few animals up there. And uh, the crow comes back, Ferdinand comes back and basically says, uh, yeah, you guys got to come rescue the group because Mm -hmm. they got hooked up with these sailors that have this idea of going to Santa's place and everything like that and they look like they want to eat them. They look like they're eyeing up Freddy and this isn't a good situation. And so they gather up a bunch of the animals and head up north. Along the way they come across two children, Everett and um, what's the girl's name? Uh, it's another E name. Uh, yeah. Ellen, not Ellen. It's Ella. 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 Yeah. Ella. Everett, Everett and Ella. They come across Everett and Ella, save them from um, a not very great situation with their <laughs> aunt and uncle. Um, and their uncle, who has, you know, a bit of a fetish for good grammar. And. Um, well, that's a way that someone could say that. Yes. Well, I mean, he he is pretty <laughs> darn obsessive. Every single thing that comes out of his mouth is either a grammatical correction or something to do with that. Yeah, um, I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. so, um, and also in within that same situation, they come across a bear, a bear that we find out later doesn't even have a name. Um, and. <laughs> Um, no, he does have a name. He just hates it. That's true, but we don't know what that name is, do we? He right? No, we don't. We no, don't ever never hear that. Yeah, it's just he he gives himself a name. What's the name that he gives himself with Santa? Oh, Peter. Uh, Peter. 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 Peter the bear. Peter the bear. Yes, the bear, I remember yeah. that. <laughs> but in any case, they run across the bear, and as they're heading up north, it's getting colder and colder and more and more miserable, and they're like, we need more blankets and clothes and support and stuff like that, and they're like, well, why don't we give lectures as we're going through Canada? <laughs> Surely animals are going to want to hear about our experiences, and wouldn't you know, the lecture tours are a big success. <laughs> and so, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, by the way, oh. I, love how, I love how much of a theme throughout both of these books, oratory has been. Oratory mm-hmm. is a big theme throughout both of these books, and we're going to talk about that later. Sure. But, um, <laughs> remind me to return to lecture tours because this is a thing I should have given Michael crap about, and I failed to. Oh. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Go on, Josiah. In any case, they keep trekking through the woods and everything, and uh, they come across some wolves that are going to try to eat a couple of them uh including uh who was it it was the dog and the rooster right uh yes jackson, i believe so yeah jackson charles yeah and so um and so there they have you know a misadventure with that the other animals come and rescue them with the help of some ants we'll talk about that later with the whole <laughs> savagery within the animal kingdom thing certainly that's going to come up um but um 
They get out of that. They head up further north. They see these confusing signs about how you need to stay out and there's trespassing due to, you know, this like corporation or something like that. And they're like, that's weird. And they show up at Santa's place where Freddy and the sailors and everyone are there and everyone's perfectly happy and everything, except for Santa's a little bit peeved at one situation. The fact that when the sailors showed up, they said, oh, Santa. You are not running this efficiently at all. You need to do things this way and this way and this way. And the sailors get to work with correcting Santa's system. Um, the sailors are quite contented with where they are and so are the rest of the animals. In fact, Freddy has become very, very fat and um, doesn't really have much motivation to leave or head home or anything like that. He just eats and writes poems. That is what Freddy does now. And... Um, the other animals, knowing that the situation is what it is, start scheming of ways to get the sailors away so that Santa can get back to running things the way that he wants to. They try three different things. First thing they try is they try to break the ice cream machine because the sailors talked about how the ice cream was the best <laughs> thing that was there. And they broke the ice cream machine, which they're like, yes, wonderful. To which Santa was just like, oh, I'm sorry, the ice cream machine is broken. Here, have this wonderful pudding. And yes. it's like, oh, that, the had animal. No effect, that had no effect whatsoever. Well, and, and beyond that, the animals were, were had said they didn't want dessert because they knew the ice cream was going to be disgusting. Terrible, yeah. yeah. And so they had to watch everybody else eat this delicious dessert. And they were like, oh, I want that. Yeah, backfire. So one point. of them had one of them had the comment of something to the effect of, um, "Well, we ate the nose off of our faces there." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the second thing they try is they hear from the mice because the mice are a big confidant with the captain or whatever. Um, they hear from the mice that the sailors are very superstitious and mm -hmm. definitely believe in ghosts. And so mm -hmm. they try spooking them with ghosts. And this plan almost works, except that there's one sailor that's not scared of ghosts at all. Ew. And he tries, like, <laughs> shooting one of them. And the cow, Mokus, <laughs> is just like, uh, yeah, I'm done with that. And, you know, just lets her sheet fall off. And all the other animals are like, yeah, I guess we're done. And, you know, <laughs> let their sheets come off, too. And... All the sailors are like, well, that was a pretty good joke and everything like that. And the sailors don't know that the animals are, you know, still scheming to, you know, get rid of them. Right. Uh, brief correction. It was uh, Mrs. Wiggins, not Mrs. Wogus. Ah, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. Easy mistakes. Yeah. Both W names. Yeah, easy um, mistake, but Josiah is still devastated. <laughs> I am devastated. I live to devastate Josiah. Yep. Anyway. Uh, you you don't devastate me when I go off on my extemporaneous talks of, you know, a book that I read through really quickly. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> in any case, um, third plan that they have, they try to create this treasure map because they hear that the sailors are very much into treasure hunting and they plant this treasure map in a book that the captain's gonna see captain hooker finds the treasure map and instead of doing the good thing and telling all of his mates about it he heads off by himself which all the animals are like well crap that's not what we and so they go after him they manage to get the reindeer that he steals to you know come back and everything and the eskimos that they you know 
ditch him off at, bring him back, and he's you know, all all in a temper and everything. But they keep the map, and it's right around Christmas time, and so all gets forgiven essentially. And um, during the Christmas celebrations and everything, which by the way, when Hooker escapes, he injures a reindeer because he makes him run when he really shouldn't have, and makes him you know in even worse shape. To which, yeah, which weirdly is the second darkest part of this children's novel. Yep, we'll <laughs> the second, <laughs> the second darkest. Um, but Uncle William, the horse, fills in for the reindeer and everything, and so he gets to be in on that experience and save Christmas and everything like that. Uh, there are celebrations at Santa's place because, of course, Christmas, um, and the animals give the treasure map to captain hooker in front of everybody so that he can't do the thing that he did before and so all the crew is in on it now the sailors leave to hunt for the treasure as soon as they leave Santa's like well that was a great plan and everything but i feel bad selling them off without you know a treasure being there and the animals are like really we don't need to feel bad about this and santa's like um no we do need to feel bad about this and we need to fix it i am santa yeah basically. And so he devises this plan to get a treasure down there in Florida where the map is, you know, based or whatever before the sailors get there. And a little while later or a couple days later, Santa's like, you know what? I'm going to, you know, give you guys a ride home so that you don't have to travel all the way back. You guys will be home before new year's and everything. The animals are kind of sad to leave the North pole, but you know, it's great that they're going to be going home. Uh, Santa gets pulled over in a town really, really close to the Beans farm and, you know, almost gets arrested and everything. But then when he proves that he's Santa Claus by indicating that the, what, what was it? The inspector or. What's uh, uh, crap. What's the name? Uh, uh, Not inspector. Justice of the Peace. He he reveals yeah, that Justice yeah. of the Peace in this town played with dolls when he was little. And so and so that was his way of, you know, proving that he was Santa. And um and so he gets off um without a ticket or anything, and he gets the animals home. Uh Mr. Bean, of course, is super happy to have the animals back. And um and also they bring the kids along too, of course. And so now Mr. and Mrs. Bean have kids. The one thing that they, you know, wanted. And so, yay. yeah. Yay. So that's the end of the series. Oh, Everyone has gotten oh, everything also, they want. Also, by the way, Santa doesn't <laughs> stop off at the bad, terrible aunt and uncle that, you know, abused the kids. Oh, he yes. Says, by the way, I am going to recompense you for the children that we are taking from you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm buying these children Possibly yeah. the third darkest you know, scene in the book. Very yep. Les Miserables sort of yeah, situation. Very much. Yep. Very much so. Um, so, yeah. Anything that I missed that was a decent no. plot point? No. I'm pretty sure you hit the, hit the highlights. I think you got everything. And I want you to not worry because from the second book in the series on through, I believe this is a 26 book series, uh, the plots will only get sort of less baroque and less uh, 
complicated for you to explain. Like, they will only get easier from here. Although, I feel like that's part of the charm of these books. That they just meander and have (laughs) weird places. Not only meander, but do whatever they want. (laughs) In a way that I think you could not do with books published by a 2020 publisher aimed at this, like, reader level, grade level, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Maybe, like, and and I I wasn't gonna go off on this until later, but no time like the present. Imagine wandering into you know the office of some like children's like you know middle grade say book publisher, even like young young adult publisher. You know that that uh, genre that exists Y Y A, and. Being like, all right, so I have a book. I want to. I want to write this book where animals can talk to each other, and they also form a corporation. Uh, oh, but humans can't understand when they talk. But Santa Claus can. Oh, also Santa Claus is in this book. Oh, and also there's like a Moby Dick passage. Oh, and then at some point they wander into a horror movie uh, where a child is chained to a radiator by an abusive parent. Did I tell you this book was for 12-year-olds? Um, like, and then at the end, it goes like Miracle on 34th Street, but like if Miracle on 34th Street were sort of like shaming someone for playing with dolls when he was five. Um, but also Santa Claus is very charming. Oh, and no humans can understand the animals except Santa Claus can. Um, <laughs> the children can't even important. understand them. And the children travel with these animals without question. Right. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. And in fact, they like, imagine the lectures that the animals put on and think that they're great because they see all the other animals applauding. And so they're like, yep, great. All right. That's okay. we're, we're also like, which like children would absolutely do. Absolutely. Um, yes. Very realistically depicted. Like, in a way that I, I think I accepted the, like, wildness of the plots, especially, remember, like, what I'm remembering right now is, like, especially the plots of the first three books in the series. I just sort of accepted them as a child as, like, oh, yeah, this is what children's books are. Like, I feel like these children <laughs> in the book also just sort of oh, accepted, they- like, the, children, the, the animals that were their caretakers who they couldn't talk to would bring them into a space with other animals who would like make noises for a while and then everyone would applaud and then they also would applaud. Well, here's the thing. In the midst of reading this book, I also introduced my kids to Homeward Bound. Uh, (laughs) I think I I watched Homeward Bound at roughly the same time I was being introduced to the first which I do think also helped me not find the plots of these books wild. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, and here's the thing, too. There's there's that whole section in Homeward Bound where they come across this girl who's lost in this park. Uh, oh, yeah. Wild park or whatever. And so, like, you know, they talk to each other and like, oh, she's lost. We need to take care of her. And so, uh-huh. like, this little girl just winds up snuggling with the dog and cat uh, overnight uh, mm-hmm. And like, I mean, it, it's it's. I, w- I was having flashbacks to that while while reading. I those yeah, I, I was book, having the like, same flashback. Yeah, these 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 kids are just following with these animals because I mean they are alone. They don't have anybody else who actually cares for them or, or 
will yes. give them the love and affection they well, need. I mean, so what, here are the what, animals who are going to do that. When you're tied to a radiator and a cow <laughs> comes in and saves you, then yeah, I mean, you're going to follow that cow. Especially a flying um, cow, right? <laughs> right. Well, and also, like... Okay, like, remind me to get at Michael about the lecture thing later. Um, <laughs> because I do want to talk about this horror movie that these animals wander into. Oh, sure. Um, and then, okay, so they rescue the kids from this horror movie. So it's like a, only it's only like a 30-page excursus into horror fiction um, in this children's novel. Uh, but then, like, there's this description of, like, the kids... They they were so used to getting spanked that they would like they spank would... each other. Yeah. Yep. Right. Which so is dark. like a it's so dark and b it's a pretty accurate description of like PTSD oh. and like and and abuse and trauma like yeah, abuse abuse ideation yeah in this children's book right no i mean it's it's absolutely accurate i mean like so so kids in in like traumatic households like this wind up having kind of a a a need to sustain themselves on chaos because that's what they know yeah and so everything gets thrown into upheaval which like to anyone who's not in that same context would see it as you know naughty behavior or or acting out or or rebellion but really they're just trying to feel secure to feel at home because that's what has been home for them is chaos so that's the same thing that that these kids are 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 exemplifying in this book is the the need to get back to what they're used to however abusive or unhealthy that is yeah and, which is like, I mean, Walter R. Brooks has a really incredible understanding of like human nature that he sometimes like explicates through his descriptions of how animals are. Um, but it's it's almost like he understands like what these children realistically would have gone through and like the yeah. the ideations that they would have. Uh, uh, felt the need to act out Mm -hmm. um, in a way that like both psychologists and fiction authors maybe wouldn't like tend to do for another 50, 60 plus years. That was the first horror, or that was the number one horrifying thing about this book. Let's talk about the other two things. Shall we, Ethan? What was number two? Uh, I know that I said two more things. I do have forgotten them. Uh, one of them is the uh, reindeer. The reindeer yeah. getting injured. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> it just lies so, down in the snow and is like, I'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, which is like very much like a World War One soldier like telling his, his unit to go on without him. Right. Um, when, also, the fact that like this pirate does this thing, and then Santa Claus is like, oh, 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 he was just motivated by greed, like any of us could be. Like, there's no real consequences, or like, like, social, or cultural, or legal consequences for this man, like, laming this reindeer. Fortunately, this book isn't, like, early 20th century enough that Santa Claus takes him out behind the woodshed and shoots him or anything. Um... But yeah, it's just like, oh yeah, he lamed the reindeer. You right. know, and you I mean, do. I mean, and I mean, 
the same thing with, you know, the the kid's aunt and uncle. Santa Claus shows up and gives them money to, you know, to make up for Yeah, and that's, kids I believe people. I said the third darkest part. Um, so th- this, this, uh, this might connect just a little bit to um, one, of, one of these curriculum-related discussion questions and activities that I came across. Um, under under language arts in characterization question number two is there are a number of memorable villains in the freddy books list as many as you can i'm not going to do that discuss what motivates them how are they similar how are they different how many of them are animals how many are humans how does freddy react to and deal with them okay so i don't care about any of the questions i just care about the observation uh that there um, are many villains okay. because no. if you look at the villains hold on let me finish my sentence ethan i had a response to the first half of your sentence but go on okay looking at these these whalers these sailors you would expect them to be villains but yes. the way santa claus reacts to them and the way the animals even react to them they're not actually villains they're you know they're friendly they they get along it's just they're kind of inconvenient they're annoying and it's just please go away for a little bit go go do your own thing yeah. <laughs> we like you we just like you over there <laughs> right they're like when a kid who's like in their late 20s moves back into their parents house and their parents like love them but need them not to be in their house. They need them to be in their own house. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, I don't know why I said late 20s. I had this experience in my early 20s. Sure, um, sure. But either way, yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't worry. Well, I forgot what my response was to the first half of your sentence. So That was uh, my goal. So I have accomplished my purpose, and I will now pass on. Um, all right. Uh, you're so, like a dog in that movie. A dog's purpose. Yes. I didn't see that movie, but I did. I I I was thinking Casper the Friendly Ghost, but okay. I think there is, like, I think that movie is about where, like, a dog passes on but then comes back, reincarnate. I don't know. Anyway. I know reincarnation uh, of dogs is something to do with it, but that's all I know. That's not what we're talking about, though. (laughs) This is not the dog's purpose podcast. Please don't let this be a dog's purpose podcast. <laughs> In any case, let's talk about something else. Um, topic that we talked about last time and one that we wanted to bring up again this time. Uh, the savagery of the animal world. Um, Starts and in I chapter think one. Wait, yeah, wait yeah. no, okay. Can, wait, can we come back to this? Because I just need to talk about lectures for just one minute. I promise this will be very fast. Uh, um, you're going to lecture us about lectures. Great. Absolutely. But quickly, uh, so the lecture tour is something that would have been in the zeitgeist, including probably for, say, 12 to 15 year old children in 1930 in a way that it would never be again after. Oh, I know. I knocked my microphone down. Hi. Um, in a way that it would never be again after 1930. Uh and the reason I know all about this is that uh, I did my master's thesis on one Mark Twain. Who's that? Who? Uh, he's an American author. He's pretty obscure. Uh, he wrote a book called... Is he related Metaphor- to Samuel Clemens? 
Hey, listen, only one of us can make very clever Mark Twain jokes on this podcast, and it's me. Um, so, in in his lifetime, Mark Twain probably made more money from his lecture tours than from his books. Um, and there is a book, if, if you want to know more about this, and this is me like summarizing an hour's lecture into less than a minute. If you want to know more than, about this, there is a book called The Trouble Begins at Eight, um, which is the phrase Mark Twain would put in his like newspaper advertisements about his lectures uh, to indicate when they began. Um, but so the, the whole point of the greater lecture culture was like, before 1930, and especially, say, before 1920 or 1915, you didn't even have radio. Uh, TV wasn't going to be a thing till another 20 years after 1930, functionally, for, like, most American households. Um, so, like, your evening's entertainment, your equivalent of, like, binge-watching three episodes of Teenage Bounty Hunters on Netflix was... Um, quite often going down to the local lecture uh, um, venue and listening to whatever lecture happened. And, you know, there were some real boring lectures, like you had biologists coming through and, and other science boys and stuff. But um, you also had people like Mark Twain who would give humorous lectures and Twain uh, uh, sort of invented the end of the lecture and the beginning of stand-up comedy, so Twain would just be mm -hmm. on a stage by himself for an hour saying entertaining things. Um, so, like, mm -hmm. this this idea of, like, the animals giving a lecture tour is something that kids in 1930 probably would have heard about from their parents or grandparents mm -hmm. if, uh, like, whaling, it was not, like, still something that was surprisingly current in a much later era than I thought it would have been. Um, I am actually glad you brought that up because that was a thought that did occur to me. It just didn't occur to me to look at the history uh, of it. I Like, I know just the bare minimum of it. I, As I understand sure. it, Mark Twain was inspired a little bit by Dickens's lecture, tour, yeah. lecture tours. Okay. Yeah, um, thank you for saying the thing that I deleted from my extemporaneous okay. lecture on lecture tours. Yeah. No, Dickens was, like, the first sort of... The the guy who, like, broke the ground for what Twain would do, basically. Right. Well, and I mean, the thing with Dickens is that Dickens would just straight up read his books. And like, oh, yeah, do, they were yeah, essentially yeah. readings. And he, would, yeah. and he would just do a reading of his books, which initially, I think that's what Twain tried to do but he was yeah. not very successful with um well what twain what twain would do is he would take passages from his books that he thought were sort of complete in them in and of themselves um and you can find like there are parts of say huck finn or tom sawyer that are like like they work as mini stories within the novel but especially in his travel books he would have entire chapters that were basically just short stories that he had sort of cramped in right mm. um but what Josiah's right, what Twain found was that the written versions of his stories functioned as written versions of his stories. And um, when he would give the lectures, he needed to sort of develop like oral versions of his stories. Um, so like Twain basically started out trying to do what Dickens would do in reading passages from his books, but he would develop essentially unique versions of 
his his books or or, or selections from his books um, that he thought were more entertaining on like a stage on like a, a sort of spoken medium um, as opposed to like just a, a written medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, like the the uh, whatever you can call it energy that Walter R. Brooks is having his lecturing animals do in his book from 1930 was developed by Twain, developed originally by Dickens, you know, from mm-hmm. the 1830s to the 1880s to the 1930s. Right. Well, and I mean, within these books, I mean, you have the, the lecture tour thing, which I mean, you have lectures happening in the first book and you have them oh, yeah. happening yeah. in this book and just the concept of speeches and, um, and all these different uh, forms of oratory happening throughout these books. And I mean, of course, within a book with talking animals, it's almost like, I mean, that's almost an undertone theme in about any book about talking animals, the oratory aspect. But the fact that it's capitalized on so much within these books is kind of a cool element that within Mm -hmm. the animal kingdom, of course, oratory would be a big deal. You don't have, you know, a bunch of animals writing down things. So, I mean, that's where the communication happens. It's the oratory. And so... At yeah. the same time, I wonder uh, how much. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I want to open this can of worms. Um, <clears throat> but when it struck when when I when I read the idea that uh, Ferdinand the Crow had to have this lecture tour in the woods, the way he phrased it, I wondered if some colonialism was creeping in here because. <laughs> What page uh, are you on for this? Uh, page one twenty-five in my edition. I don't know if it's the if it's the same as yours. Mine is. I think uh, it is. Yeah. Seventy-fifth anniversary edition here. Um, yep. Same. Cool. Yeah. Page one twenty-five. Uh, it's the last paragraph there. Uh, the time, however, continued. The crow has now come. As you have seen, these woods are full of birds and animals, creatures of little experience, who have never known much about anything but their small woodland affairs, and are intensely curious about the outside world. What's the one thing we can give them that they haven't got? Why, our experience of the outside world, of course. We've traveled, we've been everywhere and done everything. We know life. We can sell that knowledge for the things we need. Just that uh, that idea there is that, you know, we're so much smarter. We're so much more enlightened than these poor, simple woodland creatures. And uh, they don't know anything about the outside world, which, like, at that 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 phraseology struck me as so absolutely foreign to you know our our sensibilities now that the outside world is yeah. where nature is <laughs> that's the outside right. world which might just be the the idea of just exploration that maybe um mm-hmm. the whole world was uh, bigger than than it is now now to find the outside world we look to the places where man hasn't touched as much within the spaces where man yeah. has um, um like you brought up the phrase colonialism and Yeah, and I don't know if that's exactly uh, correct, but that's like the no, first thing in the mind. Okay. No, I think it honestly I think it is exactly correct. Um because like this is the vocabulary of colonialism is that like uh you have you have this like us, this this central and in this case very American like mm-hmm. uh you know, sort of civilized people who know things, and then you have the them that's like, 
you don't want to be condescending, but also they like don't have as have as advanced civilization as we do, and they like you know have certain things that are like outside their wheelhouse or their knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, an interesting thing, and you could draw this like it's another. It sort of reminds me of like the scene with the the crocodiles um, from from uh, Freddy Goes to Florida. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you, where you have these these things sort of coded in certain ways, and like depending on how you read the ways they're coded, they're more sort of troubling or less troubling, um, because you also have this like American versus Canadian divide. Like these are American animals uh, giving lectures to Canadian animals. Um, oh, sure. <laughs> you also have this like urban versus rural divide where like. Uh, Ferdinand here is like using some of the vocabulary of like people from big cities talking to like people from the country Mm -hmm. Um, and like yeah all of of it is very like again I, I don't know we could we could like have a debate about how condescending it is versus oh sure like not necessarily condescending just like uh, you know i mean there's there's a certain reality in especially a pre-electric age which like a lot of the tropes here are harkening back to um sure. certainly in an age before uh radio was even widespread necessarily yeah. and especially before tv and movies were super widespread um well and that's you know, something you could that's- argue that Interesting in here, too, is, you know, Ferdinand has that whole speech, which you could say is very much in the colonialism mindset. But then, you know, when the lectures actually start taking place, they find that some lectures aren't as successful. And so they have to play to their audience uh, in that way and and Mm -hmm. do something that the people that they're speaking to want to hear. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which is between with the debate between like the bear and the horse about city living versus wild that they have, then inevitably every single time they have the wild living win out for, you know, the sake of the audience and everything like that. Yeah. Which is something that like lecture, like real life, you know, late 19th, early 20th century lecturers like found that they did have to adapt these lectures to their particular crowd. Sure. Um, Oscar Wilde was like someone who gave a, an American lecture tour sort of on the back of Twain who, you know, gave it on the back of Dickens. Um, and Wilde has a famous story where piggybacking at the same time. Right. Really Which is a great thing. mental image. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Wilde found that like, oh, he had some famous quote where he like ended up giving a lecture in like Leadville, Colorado, like this, this like rural minor mountain town um and there was something about like it being the most polite place that he had been to outside of london because everyone in this mountain town carried guns so like (laughs) they were all very polite to each other because if you weren't polite like someone would pull out a gun like you know and but he found that they were like some of like they were the most interested in his lectures about like art history or something more than any other crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 
I'm pretty sure I'm absolutely mangling this reference, but the point is that like there are these ant- historical antecedents for lecture tours, like where people find, uh, you know, a, a, a sympathetic crowd in a place that they had not expected to, and maybe vice versa as well, a, a not sympathetic crowd where they might have expected to. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, the whole, like, the experience of the traveling animals versus the experience of the animals out in the wild and the disconnect there of like, well, our life is just so different from their lives and everything that does come to a very, you know, real point when they run into these big dogs that, <laughs> yes. that, that they don't even have the word wolf in their vocabulary. They right. like so many of the animals don't even have the concept of what a wolf is until this yep. until this experience and um and well since we're talking about it then can are we have we gone down the lecture hole enough can we talk about the <laughs> absolutely okay yeah. Yeah. So, went that farther and i apologize farther down the lecture hole than i meant us to but, but I, that's right. so, <laughs> so kind of going going forward with the wolf thing um, the thing that struck me the most is, I mean, the wolves take them back as hostages and everything yep. and, um, and are basically like, so we want the children. And if you give us the yeah. children, then great. Yeah. We'll let you go and everything. Otherwise mm-hmm. we're going to eat you instead. Um, so, I mean, you have that whole thing. And then while they're being held prisoner and everything, Charles is, you know, biding time and he finds these ants and starts eating them. And just yeah. starts, you know, yes. eating these ants. And then suddenly he realizes, wait, hold on a second. I can actually use these guys. And as soon as he realizes that, he has a conversation with them and is like, hey, do you guys want to help us out? And we'll give you like some honey and stuff. And I mean, even in the middle of his conversation, the one that he's talking to is like, oh, where are the people that were right next to me? Yeah. And Charles oh, is oh like, God. oh. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, like I'll I'll wake up whatever my best friend Michael. I Harkins right. Wait, where, where Michael was sleeping right beside me. Wait, is Josiah here? Wait, Josiah is also gone. Yeah, right. And Charles is oh, just well. standing there, like, oh, why? I don't know. Yeah, no time to worry right, about that now. Right back to the beginning of the book because it opens up with Jinx the cat stalking a mouse, uh, and then pouncing on it only to discover that it's uh eeny one of the, yes. the mice that he traveled to florida with and eeny's like hey you said you weren't going to eat us uh anymore and jinx is like oh uh yeah i was i was i was only playing um <laughs> uh, or Wait, no just- no, Jinx, Jinx says, oh, how did I know it was going to be you or, or your cousins? You were all supposed to be gone. I thought it was some different mouse that I was going to be eating. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, later on when they're at Santa's house, then one of the toys that Jinx has is this very realistic yes. looking mouse that, you know, bears yeah. around exactly like a mouse. And he pounces on it and everything. Right. And the other mice are just standing there like, this isn't okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. So no, the, it it like the Which animal is, kingdom is very very real in a lot of ways. Yeah. Here. Even though it calls attention to itself breaking the rules of the animal kingdom. Mm-hmm. Well, and and like this is something I tried to articulate last time, and I don't feel like you did a very good job, and I don't know if I'll do a better job this time. But um, I think a lot of like your babes and your chicken runs and even your like Charlotte's webs. Um, the, the, the urge and your animal farms, which is obviously in the exact same category as all of these other books. Um, you know, you know, with the whole Freddie, the pig taking on human characteristics and telling all the other animals that it's okay for him to take on human characteristics. We all know that George Orwell read this book and based Animal Farm off of this book, right? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, but like we've had the claim last last session that a uh, uh, Tolkien based uh, Lord of the Rings off it, and then we did claim this session that um, what was it? Uh, person who wrote Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer base that one off this i think we have to save animal farm for freddy the detective Um, oh really you think so well just as a matter of good order i don't think you're wrong josiah i'm just like can we at least say that the coca-cola corporation based their image of santa off of the image of santa given in this book i mean yes absolutely we have have the red coat we have the black belt i don't know if we have the hat I don't know if you have a yeah. Yeah, Hold on. Let's that's like... something hopefully we'll talk about at least briefly. Uh, maybe we can do it now because I forgot where I was going with this. You um, were talking Animal about Kingdom. Animal Kingdom, yeah. Oh. Yeah, okay. So your babes, your Charlotte Web, Charlotte's Webs, your uh, chicken runs, they all have this like analogy thing going for them where it's like, you, yes, thank you. Um all our viewers will adore this picture of Santa from the top of chapter 15. Um, yep, he's wearing a hat there on page 266. He's got the hat. So it's he's got, got the belt. He's got the reindeer. Yeah. Um, We're on to you, Coke. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Animal Kingdom. We're all on Coke. about the Animal right. Kingdom. Uh, I mean, we are. But we're not gonna. We don't have time to talk about that now. Uh, okay. Whereas the Freddy books, like they break. So all of these, all of these fictional things with like at, like animals talking like humans, they have this convention where it's like got to be parallel to some human thing. So like, oh yeah, uh, Chicken Run does does the Great Escape, uh, Babe. Does the Great Escape? Um, <laughs> Charlotte's Web. You know, Charlotte's Web does the Great Escape. Uh, <laughs> Stuart Little does Chicken Run. No, anyway, uh, I think the Freddy books like the one of the great things about them is that they don't do that at all they just take the idea like what if animals can talk to each other but not to humans and they just sort of run that thread like as far as it could possibly go yeah um they've got their own society yeah which includes like all of the data that humans perceive about animals which is like they eat each other and like there's this whole hierarchy 
Um, but then sometimes yeah, it, they don't, and that's for some other greater gain and reason mm-hmm. that they do this. Exactly. Yeah. And then sometimes the animals will act like humans, like Freddy, and who knows why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and at the same time, while this society within the animals is slightly covert, the humans know about it in some yeah. way, shape, or form. They're Somehow. aware. They can, They're aware they can, of they can the weirdness. And oh, yeah, they must be taking a trip to the North Pole. That must be yeah. happening here. Of course, it makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, and, like, and then it's so, like, okay, so here's the thing. So my wife likes anime, right? And the thing I always, all right, and don't worry, I'm, like, sorting the thread out here, but I'm going to tie it back into everything we're saying. I sure Um, hope so. So the thing I always say about every anime show that I like, and I think I, like, gave this analogy in another podcast that the three of us recorded together, together. Um, is that you can look in any four at any four objects in a room with you and create an anime. <laughs> like, you know, I'll just be like, you know, uh, book Joan of Arc radiator nutcracker. And like, that sounds like the title of an anime. Um, because animes, what they do is they like pull all these concepts together that don't necessarily all like flow from one another. So you'll have like an anime that's like a police procedural, but it's about vampires, but also like there are colonies in outer space. Um, <laughs> and it like breaks a lot of the conventions of like modern American entertainment. Uh, and Freddie does the same thing because he, he, you know, it's like, oh, this is a book about talking animals. But also Santa Claus is real. Oh, and Santa Claus can talk like the language that all the animals talk. Ethan, Ethan, you've done it because I was going to ask what like uh, what a movie adaptation of Freddy books would look like, and you've answered it. It's an anime series. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and it would be. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. I am now imagining like Henrietta whenever she gets ticked off doing the big eye thing where, you know, yeah. her, her head gets like way bigger than the whole rest of her body and she goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. And it would be called something like, you know, Talking Pig Santa Claus Ray Gun. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to apologize to any Japanese listeners that we ever have because um, I'm sure everything I have said about anime is deeply offensive but yeah, it's it's the honest thoughts of my soul so that's the only defense I have but at the same time it I, I think the structure of this book and the previous book and who knows about the future books besides oh my gosh will, would fit the structure of anime so very well. Mm. Oh, I love this so much. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Gentlemen, is it time for one liners? One liners, yes. One liners. Oh, yeah, that, that sequence that I forgot we had. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Eni found, being a mouse, he didn't have any eyebrows, and so he had to do most of it with his ears, which made him look quite terrifying, even though he was so small. It quite terrified Freddy. Again, I, I love the fact that last time we talked about this, we talked about how there are so many like one-liner quotes that you can make a calendar with them. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You can yeah, make yeah. like one of those 365-day calendar rip-off things, and each day right. is just a different quote. Um, All right. I have, I have the next one. And go for it. Um, the other passage that I had to read out loud to my wife, other than when uh, the rooster, whose name I have now forgotten, when Charles. he, uh, yeah, when Charles, like, eat some of these ants and then decides that they're his allies. Um, yes. <laughs> the other the other passage that I had to like march upstairs from the basement where I was reading and read to my wife wife was when they meet the bald eagle. Oh yes, oh, I love that eagle. whole thing. That I whole exchange that is so wonderful. That's great. <laughs> yes. And so uh the, the it's the rescue party meeting the bald eagle and I was like, okay, so, and I gave her some just random example of just like the rest of the animals speak what would be roughly colloquial English in 1930. But how can you find them in all these square miles of trees is just a random sentence, right? Um, so it's like they're animals, they're talking, but like they're talking roughly 1930 English. Mm-hmm. Whereas the eagle, um, having been questioned about the whereabouts of the rescue party's friends, the eagle says, I bade you listen. Did I not speak of their arrival? You are wasting with your idle words time that is far more precious than your own. More precious even than mine, for it is the time of my master. And then I did have to give my wife the context that Santa Claus is a real person in this book. For it is the time of my master, Santa Claus, and it lacks but a short space of time to Christmas. Um, which the follow-up is also wonderful. He said considerably more about wasting time, but Ferdinand had sense enough not to point out that if time was being wasted, it was not he who was wasting it. Um, and this is such a wonderful, like, on Walter R. Brooks's, like, uh, level as an author just a wonderful mastery of language where I'm pretty sure, and I haven't done this, so I could be wrong, but I'm 97% sure if you chunked that Eagle's speech out, it would be iambic pentameter. Uh, It's certainly, it is certainly, listen again, did I not speak of their arrival? You are wasting with your idle words time. That is far more precious. Like, it's yep. iambic meter for sure. Yep. Um, oh, that's fantastic. So this, this eagle speaks like Shakespeare talks in this book for 12-year-olds. Um, I assume for 12-year-olds, I don't know for sure. Uh, and that's that's my contribution to to this segment. Nice. Um, I've got the just just one that, that that I was thinking of, and that's when um, uh, Quick was waking up Freddy to to go chase after the captain, uh, and he bit Freddy in the ear, um, 
and Freddy reacts by, you know, surprise and astonishment and knocks Quick into the wastebasket. Uh, and it says, Quick stayed there until Freddy had stopped fighting with the bedclothes and shouting, help, murder, somebody stabbed me. Then he crawled out and turned on the light and apologized for having been so brutal, which is just okay. along the lines of how polite the animals are, even when they have to be savage. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's wonderful. I, I, I like how like occasionally he, occasionally Brooks even has these like little flippant one-liners, like when you get introduced to Marietta, uh, Mrs. Wogus's daughter, then mm-hmm. you are told Mrs. Wogus called Marietta her little girl. But of course she was a cat. It's like that didn't need to be said. You didn't need to say that. But it's yeah, wonderful that you said that. So you didn't good. need it, but I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Uh, man. And once again, like, uh, we don't need to, I mean, if you guys have something, we can't. We don't need to quote, like, when Brooks just makes these pronouncements about how animals are. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like we quoted a bunch of them last time, and there are some other just wonderful ones in this one. But again, it's just like you could just pull those pronouncements out and just again make a tearaway calendar out of all of them, and it would Absolutely. be wonderful. Yeah, they have one on deer and deer and how yes. they function with gossip and mm-hmm. um, yes. and everything like that. I again, I'm gonna try to really hard to not read every single one that I come across. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, just other ones. I mean, I I see this one. Good gracious sakes, alive! Mrs. Wiggins exclaimed. Very strong language for a cow. Yeah. Man, one one that I one that's a bit longer that I am going to actually take a little bit of time on is the one about being too sophisticated. Oh yes. Yeah, if you recall, then at one point, the animals are starting to turn on Ferdinand a little bit when it's getting a little bit too cold and everything. And Mrs. Wiggins and Ferdinand have a little bit of a angsty relationship with mm-hmm. each other here and there. And at one point when Ferdinand is like, well, if you have an issue with anything, then just say it. And Mrs. Wiggins, just because she has too much pride at the moment, she just says, Yes, I do have an issue. And Ferdinand is like, all right. Uh, Ferdinand said, out with it. The cow hesitated. She couldn't really think of anything she had against the crow, except that he was bad-tempered and bossy and disagreeable. And she didn't want to use any of those words because she was afraid they might make him feel bad. Again, (laughs) again, the politeness of the animal kingdom. If she could only think of one that didn't mean quite so much, (laughs) even one that didn't mean anything at all would be better. And then she suddenly remembered a word that she had heard in a story that Freddie had been reading out loud one night in the cow barn. She didn't know what it meant, but it sounded like the right kind of word. So she said, well, if you want to know, I think you're too sophisticated. <laughs> At this unexpected word, Ferdinand gave a little jump. Then he opened his beak to say something, but as he didn't know what the word meant, he couldn't think of any way to argue against it. And he just stood there with his beak open, looking very foolish. 
Mrs. Wiggins turned to the other animals. Isn't he too sophisticated? She asked, and as none of them wanted to admit, they didn't know what the word meant. They all nodded and said, yes. And, and I mean, it just keeps on going down this rabbit hole of nobody actually knowing what this word means and everybody trying to make it look like they do know. And, Which yeah. I, I think is... Uh, a thing that recurs in children's literature on and off again. I'm trying to think there are some specific instances that are like just at the tip of my brain that I'm not thinking of um, where, where similar things happen, where there are words that are used and kids use words or adults use words around the kids and they assign meaning to them because they don't actually know what it means, but they don't want to admit they don't want to know what it means. But well, it just I becomes mean, part of their vocabulary and they use it in some sort of context. Like, I, I suspect Mrs. Wiggins did this, too. I don't think it actually says, does, does it actually say that she doesn't know what it means either? Oh, yeah, she absolutely okay. doesn't know what it means. Okay. She just heard Freddie say it once. Yeah, that's um, right. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, like, it's, it's the same sort of thing where, like, you don't know what this means, but I'm going to say it because I've heard it said before and it's got to mean something bad. Yeah. And well, and I mean, it's a trope that is used over and over again. I mean, even going outside of, you know, children's books and children's movies. I mean, it's used in the three amigos when El Blanco asks Jefe, what a plethora is. Would you say I have a plethora? (laughs) Oh, yes, you have a plethora. (laughs) Do you know what a plethora is? No. Why, yeah. yeah. Um, Wait, is this the Three Amigos, the movie with Donald Duck animated and some people not animated? Yeah. No, no, you're thinking of the Three Caballeros. Oh, thank you, yes. No, Three Amigos with Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, and um, Martin Short, Short. yeah. Mm -hmm. Is this the one where one of them goes, like, is the heir of a, uh, like, wait, crap, I can't think of the product, of a fortune, and he goes to a community college because his father has disinherited him? No, that's community. (laughs) Oh, right, thank you. (laughs) <laughs> There's only one person here that's allowed to make obscure Chevy Chase jokes. <laughs> Wait, which one is it? <laughs> well, I that's guess you did it. Is, yeah. 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 I don't think uh, mine was obscure. Like community stopped airing in like three years ago, so yeah. And uh, they're man. planning a movie at some point. Yeah. Oh, that's right. So, so I mean the the whole thing I mean with with the one liners of course we could go on and on with the one liners. Oh, yes. Um the the ending I did like quite a bit. <laughs> and and as there is very little to write about either people or animals when they are thoroughly and completely happy except to say that they are thoroughly and completely happy this is the end, of the, the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just very wonderful. Um it's also and I don't know, honestly, as like uh, who I am as a person, I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. Um, whether that's like a very like, uh, say, 1870s to 1930s like trope for ending novels, but uh, Twain does a similar thing in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, yeah. where he says, uh, um, 
when you end a novel about a man, you have you know when the ending is because it's about when he gets married. But when you end a novel about a boy, you don't know, so you just have to end it basically. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so what you're saying is that if we're gonna play chicken egg here, Twain got this idea from this book. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, everyone who has ever watched. Whoa! Knows that Twain was a time traveler. Yes. Um. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like Twain obviously got like went forward to the thirties, got hold of this book, got his ideas from it, went back. It's it's Time's Arrow, end of season five, beginning of season six of Star Trek: The Next Generation. I'm not TNG. That's the one I. I yep. mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Slash the one I said because of the magic of podcast. Wait, I'm gonna do a clean take. <laughs> Star Trek: The Next Generation, end of season five, beginning of season six. There you go. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, Josiah's not there yet. He's still in season three. <laughs> yeah, I am oh, in season okay. three right now. Yeah. Well, Mark Twain is in it at some point. I I have seen the Mark Twain episode. Um, Wait, so, yeah. did Michael kidnap you into his Hobbit Hole apartment also and make you also watch that episode? It Ethan, might have been Ethan, the same time. Ethan, do you, do you remember the fact that I roomed with Michael for a year? And granted, that year was entirely dedicated to the original series. So we didn't get to much next generation. So I mean, that's what that's what sophomore year was for me. It was Star Trek original series. About fifty episodes, episodes, about twelve what? Seventy-six episodes to get through. About seventy-six episodes, about twelve of them good. Hey, there are more than that. Hey. That's a Futurama reference. Thank you very much. You're a Futurama reference. Um, Thank you very much. <laughs> I when, when you mentioned the ending, I thought you were going to point out that it's a, <clears throat> it's definitely a Deus Ex Machina, um, where oh, yeah. Santa Claus is the Deus. But that's fine. I'm not actually complaining about that fact. I'm just noticing it. I mean, Santa Claus is also the Deus in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. So we have another person who clearly read this book. Wait, wait, the Santa, Santa, Santa Claus is the Deus, or Aslan is the Deus? Do we have two Deuses in C.S. Lewis? Two Deus. Um, the two term day. is Deus I. <laughs> it's Deus I in the Greek. Um, I'm calling your Latin teacher. <laughs> Oh crap! I, you could do, um, but yeah, no. Uh, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I, I still stand by my claim that uh, C.S. Lewis now also read this book before writing *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and that's where he got it's, Santa from. It's, it's all part of our thesis that Freddy is always the egg. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Freddy is always the egg. Wait, or, should or that the be the name of this podcast? Freddy is always the egg. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if we need to go that far, but it can certainly be the tagline. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Freddy is always the egg. Uh, good. If we ever get okay. so far to make t-shirts and everything, we can make t-shirts with that saying on it. Yeah. TLT. Mm-hmm. And TW in 1950, 
Um, I'm going to maybe stick by this thesis more than some of the other ones. Like, what other children's novel published 20 years before has Santa Claus just popping up as a character who can talk to animals? Does he just pop up in here or is he the Terminus? In in, uh, Freddy or in 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 My Emotional Order? Freddy. No, he's he's like, he's almost more like uh, foreshadowed in Freddy's than he is in the line the witch in the wardrobe. Oh, it's sure. almost like C.S. Lewis knew that Santa Claus was a character who could just pop up and you would expect him. <laughs> all right, all right. And it's because of the groundwork laid by Walter R. Brooks. Mm-hmm. And that's my theory now. There you go. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, I know it's way past the point for one-liners, but I was looking over my notes. <laughs> please, <laughs> yes, there's, please. And there's, one please about, the thing. there's one about dogs that stuck out to me. When when Jack and Charles were being captive by the wolves, then mm. um, the wolves say, mm. um, or Jack suggests, suppose we promise that will bring the kids and everything and then just go away and don't bring them to you. And the wolf says, Oh, you won't do that. Said the other. I fancy that I am a better judge of animal nature than to think of you or than to think that of you, your friend might do it, but no dog would, no dog would tell a lie even to save his own skin. (laughs) This and, and, and then, and then uh, the narrator says, this was perfectly true. No dog in the history of the world has ever been known to tell a lie. And that is why man has selected the dog as his chief friend among the animals. Uh, he, he, he squeezed the just so story in there. It's yeah. yeah by the yeah. way, Rudyard Kipling. Definitely was inspired by (laughs) 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 in the pretty books. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. It's again one of those things where Walter Brooks just says something about the animal kingdom and it's, yep, this is how it is. Yes, this is accurate. (laughs) Just so. Oh my gosh. Like, I was just trying to envision my brother's dog and also Michael's dog ever telling a lie. And, and they would be like, so sad if they ever did. Yeah, and the idea just bounced off my brain and just like ricocheted <laughs> back into the ether because it would never happen. <laughs> Dogs do not lie. No, no, they don't. They might be ashamed of what they've done, but they'll tell you that they did it. <laughs> <laughs> the most they'd be is like self-righteous about having done the thing. But they will tell you they've done the thing. Right. (laughs) They'll be completely honest about it. Tail between their legs. Wow. Just, yeah. Rudyard Kipling in 1930 published a book called Thy Servant a Dog, which I can only assume came out. Yeah. And I can only assume it came out months after uh, More to and Again. Yeah. Uh, Mm hmm. I will have to uh, look that book up. Uh, that or he. Uh, it doesn't have, not that I ever look at Wikipedia, but it doesn't have an article on Wikipedia. It's just in his 
bibliography so there's that but. were you right. were you looking that up to see if Woodyard kipling was a time traveler or not <laughs> absolutely <laughs> i'm not even gonna like deny that <laughs> oh, I, I like how that's the question and not well, could he conceivably have been inspired by this? No, that's not the question. Of course he was inspired by this. <laughs> yeah, I just need to know if it was before or after, chronology-wise. Right. Yep. <sighs> but it turns out, according to his bibliography, that it was just so. Just so. <sighs> Wait, who who on this podcast gets to make the obscure Kipling jokes? <laughs> <laughs> well, you already claim the obscure Chevy Chase jokes. So I mean, I, it's I either Michael the, or me. I have Rudyard Kipling's complete verse on my shelf over there. How's that count? Well, I have some Rudyard Kipling complete works, volume one and two, somewhere in my basement that I'm in right now. All right, all right. So we got to fight, I think. I think we do. All why? Yeah. Let's let's do that between this episode and the next. We'll, we'll all right. Settle that fight. Call me up. I'll watch. All right. All right. Yes. I do hate the way you said "I'll watch" twice. I'll watch. Oh, thank you. That's much better. Thank you all for coming to this podcast. And next time, what will we be reading, gentlemen? Freddy the Detective mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is and, the third book in this series. And as you've teased us before, Ethan, we're going to be getting a lot of nostalgia with that one. I would hope so, because I did literally listen to that book on tape like 30 times when I was 11. Awesome. Okay. So it depends on how whether like the thirty times wins out or the when I was eleven. <laughs> uh, yes. All right. Well, um, if none of us have anything more to offer, then thank you for joining us, listeners, and see you next time. Mm-hmm. Bye, everybody. We love you.